Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you back to another Big Conversation at Little Bar, our little podcast that we host right here at Little Bar in Palm Desert, California. My name is Patrick Evans, and I'm very pleased to be here today with my co-host, Mr. Randy Florence. Are you really pleased to be here with me today? No, but I'm selling it. Last I'm week was it. rough. Let's, yeah. <laughs> what is this, Rodney Danger? Oh, I tell you, last hey, week hey, was hey, rough. Hey. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad we both glad made it back. Anywhere. That's right. Hey, I get to introduce our guest today. Well, yes, you do. And a real feather in our cap, I think, for this podcast. Yeah, well, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, sitting across from me right now, we have Gary Keefe. Gary is the CEO and president of Stiletto Entertainment. But most importantly in the Valley right now, you were just recently named as the chairman of the McCallum Theater, correct? Uh, that's right, Randy. Yep. Congratulations, Gary. Well, Hold your congratulations. <laughs> Let's see how it goes for a while. So tell us about how that came together. Uh, Harold Matzner, who's been the chairman for 13, 14 years, that I've known for probably 20 years, uh, called me up one day and said, uh, so uh, so you're going to become vice president for a few months, and then I'm going to resign, and then, and then you're going to become chairman. And I said, who is this? <laughs> It's good to have a succession plan. Because yeah, that's kind of the way Harold operates, you know. Like, hold that thought, Harold. And um, and then it went before the board, and they, fortunately, not a lot of people showed up, so they voted me in. Just barely a quorum. Had a quorum. Said. Yeah, both of them said yes. <laughs> now, you also have been working with Harold on the board of the uh, Palm Springs International Film Festival, which also has had a recent leadership change. Yeah, yeah, that was um, uh, also kind of out of the blue that uh, Harold decided he was going to become, well, I guess he's chairman emeritus of both organizations now, so he's still involved. He's not uh, he's not uh, walking off into the sunset. Uh, which would be unlike Harold. I which think. would be totally <laughs> unlike Harold. Uh, a few months ago, he was actually very concerned about his health, but uh, he's had a miraculous recovery and he's I, I think he's got more energy and and uh, smarts and involvement now than he's ever had well I mean, that's really great news because we've yeah. all been worried and we you know it, it's been known that he has had some struggles but it is official he did send you you said he sent you the gavel so sent me the gavel yeah uh, for the McCallum it, it's glued in the box so I can't <laughs> use it yet. sword in the stone I, trying to pull you know, it off of there he, he didn't do it personally I think he was probably afraid I was going to hit him with it or something <laughs> So, uh, now talk a little bit about your background and, and what brought you here ultimately to the Coachella Valley. You you were a television executive. I worked for ABC TV, yeah, for about uh, four or five years. And did uh, I read that you were the youngest GM at ABC, twenty seven years old? Yeah, long time. <laughs> it was a long time ago, but yeah, the, um, the I I had a background in marketing. I worked for uh, uh, initially for Bank of America and then for. Kaiser, which was a big real estate development company, and ABC recruited me to bring me into what they called their scenic and leisure attractions division, and they had uh, some amusement parks and, uh, oh, kind of, it was called Smithfield, New Jersey, it was kind of like their version of Knott's Berry Farm, a 1700s village back in New Jersey, we had the ABC Entertainment Center in Century City, so they brought me in as GM in the entertainment center, and then I worked on marketing on the other projects. A couple of water parks down in Florida. Wiki Wachi. <laughs> Never could get that on a t-shirt, right? <laughs> <laughs> or say it after a couple of drinks. That's right. <laughs> Come get your Wiki Wachi. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I did that, and uh, the one of the, the project in Century City was just... Uh, losing a, a bundle and it was kind of the pet project of Leonard Goldenson who was the chairman of the board and the principal stockholder of ABC and I was doing everything I could to, in order to try to make money and one of the things that happened was this was so long ago before people were buying branded merchandise with logos and everything on it that didn't exist yet and people would come up to us and there was a strike and we all had to fill in as cameramen and they'd come up to us and want to buy our ABC official jackets and stuff like that. So I started 
at my guys. We were printing that and selling it at the ABC Entertainment, totally against all the corporate policy. <laughs> <laughs> and I always remember because Leonard came, he was based in New York, but he came out to the West Coast every once in a while. He said, he said Gary, show me what you're doing here. And he came down the elevator, and I had my guys build a retail store called it the ABC Superstar Store, full of Frisbees and everything with the ABC logo what on it. What a great idea. Well, it could have been my, <laughs> it could have been my demise. <laughs> you know, he had all these uptight lieutenants with him who were, you know. The guys that say you can't do that. You can't the guys do that. that say you can't do that, and that's not the corporate logo policy and everything. And they, they were all ready to see me be, uh, you know, hard and feathered right there and, and Leonard walked in the store and he gets a big smile on his face he said where'd you get all this stuff I said Mr. Goldson I'm trying to do anything I can to make money for you sir and I said we, I had it all made this stuff is great I want 50 of everything send it to my office I'm giving it out for Christmas presents and I could see all these guys just go oh, oh, oh. You know. all of a sudden they became believers well it took them a while so so you kind of invented merch well, I <laughs> kind of feel like level, it. I feel like that. Yeah, you know those fifty dollars T shirts your kids buy. <laughs> yeah, how I know. <laughs> Blame me, dude. Oh, way to go, Gary. <laughs> well, you, you owe me a couple of hundred bucks. Then. <laughs> yeah. So we did. You know, I I saw. I mean, listen, there was a lot of money to be made in merchandise, and uh, a friend of a friend knew Rod Stewart's manager, and. He was interested, and we all scraped together whatever money we could, and we bought the merch rights from Rod. Uh, he was a fascinating guy. He didn't, I think he had been uh, run over by people who promised him royalties. He didn't want a royalty. He wanted a check up front, and that was it. Uh, which, you know, I, I told people, Rod Stewart put me in business because if he, I'd had to pay him a royalty, he would have made about three times what I right. gave him as an advance or as a, as a flat fee. And so that grew, and then real quick, we, we uh, added Barry Manilow to it, and we added... Uh, we had Diana Ross and Stevie Wonder and Melissa Manchester and Juice Newton and John Mellencamp. And we had about 15 or 20 major mainstream acts, and we were doing all their merchandise. And that so, is under the umbrella of Stiletto? Yeah. Yeah, it, at the time, we didn't call it Stiletto for about five or six years, and we merged some other companies together, and we were trying to... We pulled a, pulled a name out of a hat. <laughs> You know, uh, truthfully, we were going to call it Triad because there were three companies, and I called my friend Arnold Rifkin, and um, he said, don't do that. He said, I'm merging my talent agency with another one, and we've already registered the name Triad, which Triad became actually part of William Morris eventually. So we did the concert merchandise for all those guys, and then maybe about the following year, we were on the road doing... um, these big outdoor amphitheaters, which I don't know what, oh, Glen Helen would be the closest one here. And uh, like the Greek theater in LA. Right. And, and uh, in those days, the, the, there, were, there were no merchandise concessionaires. It quite often was the two truck drivers who more, more often than not were both named Bubba and they'd make a deal and they'd say, <laughs> you guys can have the merchandise, right? Bubba or right. And that's how you get paid. So that you'd go to a big venue like that and there'd be two guys with a folding table selling bad t-shirts out front. And I went to um, the Jimmy Niedelander who owned a lot of those outdoor amphitheaters and truthfully not knowing any better, I said, let me come in and we'll do all the merchandise concessions. And we'll, it's all done on consignment. So we'll sell it. We'll give money back to the act who owns the rights, and we'll give money to the Needlelanders. And <laughs> much to my chagrin, he said, okay. <laughs> and so we set up merchandise concessions. We wow. had, I think, about 15 different buildings around the country, uh, like the Pantages in L.A. and yeah. the Greek Theater and the Wilshire in L.A., and we had the Pacific Amphitheater and uh, Toronto and Baltimore and all over the country. And a couple in Germany, two in England. Wow. It was wild. It was an all-cash business in those days. No credit cards. And um, we always, one, of our, one of the services that we provided was we had centralized accounting. So all the money went into L.A. and we did reports and accounts and checks. And we had one artist who didn't want to take a check. Uh, he had had a, probably about a 30-year uh, 
relationship with the IRS that wasn't going in his direction. So <laughs> he sounds w- like Willie Nelson. I'm not naming. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> was he high? <laughs> and I remember uh, he was playing the Greek theater, and we would hire like high school teachers to be the manager, and we get a lot of college kids to work the booths because these are all mostly summer venues. And the kid who was running the place, he calls me at like two in the morning and he says, I don't know what to do. I said, what's the matter? He said, there's two guys outside the door. They won't leave unless I give them cash. Oh. <laughs> I get I get my attorney, my tax attorney buddy on the phone. He says, well, now, just take a 1099 and go in and have him sign this. I said, you don't understand. He's not signing anything. He wants cash. Bobo wants his money. Two, he wants to leave. There's two guys. They may or may not be armed. <laughs> I don't think those are water pistols. <laughs> the bottom line is he got a bag of cash. I said, don't worry about it. We'll report it, and they can do whatever they want to. They were fun days. So, so we talk about wild, a- wild west of, of very mean, it really much. Was. That's a pretty sophisticated business now, but you guys were really in the infancy of it. Yeah, it uh, became. Yeah, I mean, we we eventually got to you know computerized accounting and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and did report everything. But we did that. Oh maybe 20 years probably up till about 10 or 15 years ago and then it 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 turned into a much the record companies got involved they bought up a lot of the concessionaires there were like two or three other guys by that time doing the same thing because they saw how much money was they saw how much money and then as what often happens sometimes when big business gets involved and they all lost money and then they all sold off the rights again and it's gone back and forth a few times but we were there when it, in its infancy and it was a lot of fun on both things on doing the road concessions and also doing the, uh, the permanent concessions at a building I don't know if you've ever the um, a lot of places now they use like a black anvil case it opens up and it's the display we actually have the trademark on that we created that a long time ago we let the trademark run out because it's like a you know, it's not worth spending a fortune. To, who am I going to sue? You know, like, right. hey, hey, that's our trademark. <laughs> Big deal. You know, so. Hey, I want to no. go back <clears throat> to the path that got you heading this direction. So, born in Houston, I read. Uh, grew up in Houston. Grew Actually, up in Houston. Yeah, moved there when I was two weeks old. So, not by my choice. I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> you weren't Mom, the driving I'm, factor. I'm going to Houston. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. <laughs> my first two weeks have not been fun. I'm out of here. Going back to Houston. <laughs> well, my dad had been transferred, and my mom, for some reason, stayed in Chicago with my grandparents to give birth. So she, and then like two weeks later, she was on the train to meet my dad and older brother in Houston. So lived there until I was about uh, six years old, and then we moved to Covina, which is. Most people know Covina because it's where the in and out is. Barranca, <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> well known. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like not West Covina. Because um, people know where West Covina is for some reason. So I grew up in Covina when, uh, you know, it was all orange groves and horses and hills. And before it was the, still countryside. Oh, it was still countryside. The freeway stopped in like uh, El Monte or something like that. And it was fun. What did your dad do? Uh, he, well, he was... A, he worked for a big company out of Chicago, and he ran the Western U.S. It was, uh, they did everything from jukeboxes to cigarette machines to the commissaries at all the movie studios and major plants, airplane, uh, in-flight feeding, um, vending machines. So you kind jukeboxes. of had business in your blood. Yeah, yeah. He was quite an entrepreneur, and you know, it was funny. I was thinking about it earlier today when I was driving over here. I looked off and I could see Windy Point in the distance, you know, where 111. Cause, mm-hmm. um, my family's had different parts of my family have had homes down here since the probably early 50s. So we used to come down here. And I always remember my dad would go around Windy Point and he would joke that there were misters up there spraying Valium. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, all of his cares and woes about, you know, 10,000 employees in L.A., just like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm going to go sit by the pool. <laughs> and really, that's what it's always been, I think, for everybody. Well, my wife yeah. says the same thing. She works, she's an attorney in L.A., and she says as soon as she sees the windmills, mm-hmm. a lot of that anxiety and care and worry about work just melts away. And, oh. and so that's, that's the magic of this valley. And, it, you know, and it's strange. I mean, I, I just spent a week in New York, and... and 
someone asked me earlier today, and I said, listen, New York's great. I love it. It's fun. You go there for four or five days. It's energetic and everything. But when you fly into the valley and all of a sudden you see the mountains around it and you just I just take a big sigh of relief like, oh. And uh, all the weight goes away. Yeah. You know. Just so, don't tell too many people that. Thing. No, well, we don't want the word. <laughs> more and more of them seem to be finding out. <laughs> well, that's true. So when did you like, make this your like, headquarters, permanent home base? Um, probably, it was probably about 20 years ago, 22 years ago. I thought that my career was kind of in a dip. Barry's career, he thought, was kind of slowing down. And we said, well, we love Palm Springs. It's funny. Um, Kind we should of, probably mention at this point that Barry Manilow is your husband. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was a given. Well, <laughs> you've referenced it, so I just thought we, Where we'll, you we'll been? throw Under that in. Rock? <laughs> <laughs> Barry who? <laughs> I have some of his records. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you we, thought, just, we thought we, in fact, he asked me earlier how I met Harold. So uh, came down here. I thought everything was going to slow down. I joined the tennis club, which, in, you know, that not as posh as it is now. I mean, it's kind of a dump, you know. Spencer's was a, I tell people Spencer's didn't exist. It was a Formica counter and two old lawn chairs out in front. Right. And um, I played tennis three times a week. And I'd go, it was so cool because I'd go over there. You had to play doubles. And I'd just sit there and somebody come along and say, hey, kid. And I thought, <laughs> want me to play doubles? I thought, where else can I be kid? <laughs> we're moving here. I'm 50 years old. They call me kid. I love it. You were fresh meat in this town. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, but, the, but the thing was, those old duffers, you, they were like, they were magnets. You could, they wouldn't even move a foot either direction. You couldn't get a ball past them. Somehow, <laughs> it's just like you'd return the shot and it went right right to them and they'd just kill you. They were great. They were fun guys. Gary, I was like 22 and I played in a singles tournament against a gentleman who was a club player and he was in his mid-60s. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to wipe this guy oh, yeah, off the right? court. <laughs> he beat me 6-0, 6-0. I barely touched any of his serves because uh -huh. they were moving in so many different directions. The really sad thing is I invited eight or nine people to come watch the match. So it was pretty quiet afterwards. But God works in strange ways and he got you. Yeah, he right. did. <laughs> Karma backed over you. Now you 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 um, you went to USC. Yep. What did you major in there? Uh, majored in journalism. Okay. I was gonna. Uh, I thought I was gonna be an on-air newscaster. And you made the uh, right choice. <laughs> <laughs> but then you made the mistake of going to college. It's <laughs> well, always a drawback. <laughs> no, I made the mistake. I graduated right before I graduated. Uh, one of the guys who, uh, in, in class with me uh, came in one day. He was all excited because he had gotten a job at the L.A. Times, which is like the holy grail, right? He'd come out of journalism school in those days. And I asked him how much he made, he was going to make, and I was making more money as a part-time ride operator at Disneyland. And I said, maybe journalism isn't, isn't my future. There is a lesson in that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and I wasn't going to get the job at the end. That job was gone. You know, I was going to end up at the Podunk Daily or something like that. No. Where did the creative side come from? Was that, did you have siblings and was this kind of prevalent through the family? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have an older brother uh, who's actually worked for me forever. He just retired a few years ago. Uh, he was into, he had his, uh, got his master's in cinema from USC. Wow. And he worked in the TV industry for a while until I was able to convince him to come work for me. And uh, I don't know, we, we, both, we both were raised with right brain, left brain, used both sides. Yeah. You know, um, your dad was obviously a, an entrepreneur. What about your mom? Um, yeah, well, my mom worked, you know, was in the days when women didn't work. But, you know, she was always entering cooking contests and decorating things and that kind of thing. So, yeah, she was, she was creative. You know, that was, a, that was the background. So I tell people we, we were, we were in a good way and a bad way. My brother and I were both raised without, without limits. So the expectation was always that you could do anything. It was never that you can't do that. It was, well, of course you'll do that. You know, I remember my mom decided she wanted to uh, 
uh, they had a swimming pool put in in the backyard and she wanted a brick patio and a cabana and all this kind of stuff and uh, my dad um, got a Sunset Magazine book on how to build a brick patio and handed it to my brother and I. <laughs> Good luck. Here you go. I'll order the bricks. Here's some bricks and cement. And we build it. I mean, if, if sometimes I think if kids aren't told no, then maybe they uh, expand and they learn how to do all kinds of things. Yeah, when you're not told you can't do it. Yeah. You, know, you have no reason to think you can't. So. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about it the other day. I was talking at, at the McAllen, speaking with the gal who runs the education department, and I was telling her, how, when I, I remember when I was in seventh grade, we called a culture class. They, they picked 40 kids, and every day we went to, uh, this was summer school, for like six weeks, every day we went over to the, to the school. They loaded us up in, into a bus, and we went to some different, I guess experience would be uh, we went to the Laguna Arts Festival we went downtown to the music center we went to Padua Hills to the uh, we went to Millard Sheets Gallery in uh, Claremont um, they just exposed us to all different kinds of things and I don't know I think maybe education was more open in those days or less regimented or they could do more things with you and so they exposed us all that stuff. I remember in, in seventh grade, they, they uh, I don't even know what class it was. Maybe it was an English class. We all had to go make a movie. Really? You know, what equipment did you use? Uh, it was that crank black and white thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a giant horn cone <laughs> yeah. coming out of it. Crank Super 8. <laughs> was that, what, a 16 millimeter home movie yeah, camera? Yeah. I, you know, no sound or anything like that, but... You know, we could do stuff like that, and the parents weren't protesting that we weren't learning calculus or whatever they have to do now. So you got involved. You mentioned Rod Stewart earlier, Mm -hmm. um, but you've worked with some pretty big acts in in the entertainment industry. You did some work with Donna Summer. Yeah, I managed Donna for about five years. Wow, that's awesome. She was a blast. Yeah? She was really fun. So how did you... Tell me a little bit about how you go from the merchandising side to, to the actual managing of the, of the talent. Uh, probably did the merch thing. Probably had done it for about three or four years. And uh, Barry was not having a great time with his manager. And he interviewed some other people, some other managers, uh, to consider them and wasn't really getting anywhere. And he finally just said, why don't you do it? You do all this other stuff. Why don't you do it? And I didn't know any better. And I said, sure. <laughs> no one told you you can't. So. Well, it was interesting because it, you know, I joke about it, but it, 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 there is a certain truth to it. I didn't know that you could be a manager and just have you know, uh, an assistant and one phone. Because by then, I had a staff of... 10, 15 people. I had my own art department. I had my own accounting department. Mm. I just assumed that's how you do it. You know, and it took me a while to find out that all these other guys were getting by <laughs> hardly any overhead at all. But I've, I've always done that. I still have that in L.A. I still have a dozen people who handle different parts of the thing. And I think it's probably, you know, in, in a way, it's contributed to the longevity of Barry's career because we've always... We're usually two years ahead of what is happening now, and we do our own marketing, we do our own accounting, we do our own logistics, and, you know, for a long time we had our own in-house travel agency, and, and, and I don't know, that's just kind of the way I like to do things. Uh, you were talking about how you guys just decided things might have been calming down or slowing down a little bit, so you, you moved out to the valley uh, on a more permanent basis. Yeah, on which basis. We, we used to, I had a home down here forever a second home and then decided no we want a base uh, oh, oh, uh, I was going to share this so so we looked at different places uh, Florida uh, Connecticut uh, San Juan Islands I remember I called it the Diana Ross tour because every place we were looking uh, they said oh Diana Ross was here two weeks ago and looked at this house so <laughs> she really had she ended up in Connecticut I don't think she's still there but she ended up living in Connecticut and every place we looked the realtors would say, there are two months that are just beautiful. And I'm, two I finally months. said, 
We already got a house in some place where there's two months that are hot and hell, hot as hell, but ten months that are beautiful. Why do we want to move to some place that's a swamp for ten months and has just the opposite? And it was kind of like the light bulb went on, and we said, oh, yeah, why don't we just get a different house in Palm Springs? And that's what we decided to do. And you're right. It feels different here, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... all those areas, listen, they're beautiful areas, but they really do maybe have two months of great weather mm-hmm. and, and the rest of the year, eh. You, you get no. a great month in spring and a great month yeah. in fall. Yeah. You know, October is fantastic or November is fantastic, but then it's a terrible winter and it's you know, humid yeah. summer. So, yeah. And it's humid and there are bugs. And right. Just <laughs> contrary to what I said earlier, don't anybody believe what I just said. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's really hot do down not here. Come you don't want to come down here. You're going to hate it. <laughs> You're going to hate it. There's here only one is. road in and out. Regretted one that road. decision. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and so once you, you arrived and you were here, more frequently and if not year-round you got involved in a number of different organizations including the McCallum and and the the film festival and now you find yourself with the gavel of the McCallum theater which uh, Harold has done a masterful job of making a great entertainment venue what what do you see what's your vision going forward well I think we kind of alluded to the growth in the valley. I think, you know, the population in the valley now is, I think, full-time is around 550,000 people, which I was telling a friend of mine, um, she's getting her doctorate in Oklahoma, and she's in higher ed, and she was kind of thinking about where she wants to locate. And truthfully, before I opened my big mouth and suggest she come here, I thought, well, I just want to check something. So the population of Coachella Valley is actually larger than Oklahoma City. We all heard of Oklahoma City. We all think Oklahoma City is a big deal, right? And, mm-hmm. and Coachella Valley, I think we all assume, is eh, kind of smaller. But it isn't. So when you look at, compare Coachella Valley to big, quote, big cities around the U.S., we are a big city. And that, that's a significant change in the last 10, 15 years, certainly since the McCallum was built 30-some-odd years ago. So I think we have to look at expanding our season. I think, you know, we are no longer a four- or five-month resort community. I mean, there's certainly four or five months where the population goes up another two, 300,000 people. But I think uh, as a community theater, as a uh, we're, we're public on public land we're supported by the public i think we need to expand our season i think we need to expand how we program and who we program to i think we need to keep what we have but we also need to pay attention to everybody who lives in the valley uh, you know we Harold has done a, a, a truthfully a masterful job in the 14 years that he's been chairman of taking the theater from um, they were struggling every year to raise enough money to keep the lights on. Uh, we've got a very nice endowment in the bank right now uh, that spits off a significant amount of money every year that helps subsidize what we do because ticket sales alone don't pay for everything. They pay for about half of the expenses. So and that's pretty good because a lot of theaters don't even derive half of their operating income right. from ticket sales. Right. And it, well, and listen, a lot of theaters... COVID put a lot of theaters under. Out of business in terms. You know, and the McCallum didn't. We were able to keep a lot of people on payroll. And granted, we got PPP money and we got Save Our Stages money. But still, we're in fine shape. So, I, you know, I don't want to change what we have. I don't want to take any risk that would hurt what we, what we managed to put aside. But I do think we can expand cautiously and, and cater to different uh, markets in the valley. You talked a little bit, you mentioned the education wing of the McCallum. Mm-hmm. And I know Kaiser, and, and she's been a frequent guest and I in the desert. Yeah, she's great. She's terrific. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people don't know how much educational outreach the McCallum is doing. And I think it's that's big. a great area. Kaiser's done a fantastic job, but mm-hmm. there's there's growth there as well. I think I, I think you're, we've, Kaiser and, and, and I have had that conversation because I'm a big believer in that. And I, re, I referred earlier back to culture class that I took in, when I was in seventh grade. And what she does is, is expose kids to the arts. And, you know, you, 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 you can't appreciate the arts. You can't 
dream about being in the arts, you can't support the arts if you've never been exposed to them in the first place. And she gets kids who would never have that opportunity and gets them to see what modern dance is like or what uh, music is like. And, and I think we need to do more of that. I think it's, it's, it's the future of theater and the arts in our country is only by exposing young kids to them. You're developing the future audience. I mean, those are the kids yeah. that will go on then to bring their kids back to the theater oh, yeah. and buy the tickets. And, I, you know, I think we've seen where that hasn't happened. If you look at the uh, symphonies in the United States, um, most of them did not do a good job of passing interest and support of the symphonies to the next generations. And it's kind of a shame because symphonies are shrinking and going out of business. And a lot of symphonies in, in small and mid-level towns just don't exist or barely exist. Yeah. And the big city symphonies thrive, but that that's about it. Is there a uh, tie-in to the Manilow Music Project with all of this? Um, or tell us a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind. Well, th that started, be uh, whenever it was, 20-some-odd years ago, um, because one of Barry's uh, good friend and a doctor down here asked him one day, he said, hey, my daughter plays a saxophone. You got an old sax in the warehouse. And, you know, this is from a middle upper income school in the Coachella Valley. And the question was, well, what do you mean you don't have they needed saxoph a saxophone? You need a saxophone. Uh, so Barry said, uh, he, he, he told me, he said, why don't you call the music teacher and find out what they need? So I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the high school right now. but So I called this gal and said, what do you need? And she gave me a list of, you know, I remember it was like $15,000 worth of instruments. And she said, you know, but very apologetic, you know, if there's anything you can do to help us out and da-da-da-da-da. So I told Barry what they wanted. He said, let's just buy all of them. <laughs> So we we got all the instruments. That's that a they big needed. number for a school, but well, I mean, you would have thought we gave them a million dollars. I mean, because yeah. nobody does that; they don't have the budget or anything. So then we got on this kick, and we said, "Well, let's call all the." I remember; I think there were twenty-two, maybe high schools and middle schools in the Coachella Valley, and we asked them all to give us a wish list, and we were able. We have friends at Yamaha Music at the time, and we said. They, you know, gave us a great deal, and we gave them all the instruments. But I remember, so the, the Manila Music Project is really kind of a grassroots thing. So we, I remember calling the, one of the, uh, speaking to one of the music teachers, and they said, well, you know, uh, we can't accept this. It has to go to the district, and then the district will inventory everything and tag it, and then they'll distribute it. And I said, okay. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to see gonna it. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <So> Bureaucracy, once again, <laughs> killing a great idea. So we did a big ceremony at Palm Springs High School. We had four or five trucks, and I brought all, my, all the gang, my staff down from L.A., and they all got in the trucks, and we called the teachers. We said, okay, we're dropping off the instruments at 9 o'clock. <laughs> Well, they got to go. I said, there are going to be boxes on the sidewalk. You can either come pick them up. <laughs> Do what you want with them. <laughs> and that's what we did. Of course, once we told them that, they were all, yay, because they knew. What, well, I don't want to put down the school districts, but <laughs> they were much more optimistic that they would end up with the instruments they needed if we just handed them to them rather than go through a year of going through the system. Anytime you have to, I mean, every time it passes through another set of hands, it gets yeah. more complicated. Yeah, and there, it was less. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> the numbers diminish. I grew up in an Italian family. That was always true. <laughs> <laughs> My allowance, dinner. Well, everybody had to take a bit. Everybody right? got a cut. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Hey, Vinny didn't get his cut. <laughs> and he wants it now. All of a sudden, I don't get a meatball. So this is how, this is how that works. So this would be a real mistake if, uh, in my relationship with my wife if I don't ask you this. Yeah. You did some work with Fleetwood Mac. Uh-huh. Can you tell me about that? Oh, they were fun. Uh, and and w at what time frame was that? Uh, we did uh, Tango. What was it? Tango in the Dark? Was that the album we did? Tango in the Night? Um... My buddy, who was a lawyer, called up and said, hey, would you meet with John McVie? Uh, he wants someone to manage him. And I met with John. And that was probably about a 14-year uh, relationship with John. And uh, we put the, uh, I had a business partner at the time, and we put the group 
uh, well, first we first we figured out that Fleetwood Mac is technically owned by John and Mick. Really? Uh, they own the name, they own the company, the underlying company and all that. Now, maybe that's all changed now because that was probably, that probably ended about 10 years ago. Mm. And um, so the first thing we did was we put out Fleetwood Mac, but it was only John and Mick and four other musicians. <laughs> but still, they sounded close and then... Yeah. You know, they sold 5,000 tickets a night, played around the U.S., played in the U.K., did a very successful tour. And then somewhere along the line, we got Stevie back, and then we got uh, we got Lindsay back for a tour and kind of put the whole thing back together. We ended up, we did a TV special or a HBO special with them and did two or three albums at least while we were working with But they were fun. They were just, you know. Was there ever a time when you... When you just kind of sit back and, you know, from that kid that went into USC to go to a, a journalism major, and all of a sudden you're sitting there in front of Mick Fleetwood and John McVie and B- eventually Barry Manilow and Stevie Wonder and Donna Summer, did it ever just seem unreal to you? Every day. Truthfully, every day. Yeah, like a dream. Yeah, I, it, well, it was nothing that I projected, but I, I find it... You know, I'm I'm grateful. Uh, it's been it's been a really fun ride. I remember they we did uh, on the night before Clinton's inauguration. They did a big concert. I think it was called the Senator Dome or the Arena. Out, it no longer exists out in D.C. and uh, and all the artists were there. It was Barbara, it was Barry, Barbara Streisand, Michael Jackson, Fleetwood Mac. And in the VOM, in the like the exit from the arena floor, they had all these trailers backed up, and they had a black curtain down. And so, in lining, high, creating like a street backstage. And uh, when President-elect Clinton came in, everybody was told stay behind those curtains. So you look down the curtain, and there's Goldie Hawn peeking out. From those <laughs> <laughs> Secret Service is going ballistic. I bet they oh, were. Oh, you got to get behind the curtain. <laughs> but I always remember, because uh, they had a monitor backstage, and uh, and Barry was on. Uh, Barry was the opener. Uh, it was in the round. There was a stage out in the middle of the floor. And I look over, and John and Mick are standing like a foot away from this monitor. And uh, I don't know if John would remember this, or he'd probably say I made it up, but it's true. And he, I, I go over there, and John says, what the fuck are we doing here? He knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, and John would be like, you know, there, I mean, there are, you know, singer-songwriter performers, and there are singer-songwriters who just like to get up and play their bass and just have a nice time, right. you know. And it's different, but I always remember him just look staring at this thing going, oh, God, what do we get into <laughs> We're in now? Tr- he had to open. <laughs> That's great. I remember we pitched him one time. We, uh, Dick Clark wanted him to do something on the American Music Awards. So um, my business partner, Steve Wax, and I, we take John and Mick out to lunch at La Dome. And we start over lunch, we're doing the pitch and say, you know, 10 million people are going to see this show. It's going to be great. But, you know, by the end of lunch, we're up to a billion people. You know, <laughs> Half of the world. The Half the world. You know. <laughs> we're getting more desperate because they're not, they're not saying yes, right? <laughs> and finally, at the end of the lunch, John looks at us and he says, how many people are going to see this thing? Oh, five billion people are going to see this show. He says, why the fuck we want all those people to see how old we are? <laughs> like, okay, thanks, John. Well, uh, there goes that idea. Well, we went down the wrong cell <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. If I had said two people were going to exactly. watch it, he might have said, well, okay, we'll do it. I know I had to call Dick. I said, Dick, I, I'm sorry. Your audience is too big. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You mentioned Dick Clark and the American Music Awards because one of our previous guests, a guy named Fred Bronson, mm-hmm. worked for Dick Clark. Mm-hmm. And wrote. I remember Fred. Yeah. You know, okay, Fred. Yeah. Yeah, Fred Let was him, just yeah. a guest yeah. uh, on, on the podcast, and he was talking about writing for the American Music Awards, and what what an interesting experience that was because there's so much going on at the time. Yeah. Well, it was fascinating because Dick basically created that show to compete with the Grammy Awards, right. which have always been on CBS, and ABC wanted an award show, so he came up with the American Music. Still not sure how you win. 
<laughs> That's what we should have asked Fred. That's right, damn it. I think Dick and Carrie would sit around at home in Malibu and say, yeah. <laughs> I like them. I like them. Yeah. You win. <laughs> he was funny. <laughs> they, w- they wouldn't tell you if you were going to win. They didn't, you didn't know ahead of time. But he would say... I really think you ought to go to the show. <laughs> <laughs> you probably want to be you there. You probably don't want to miss this one. <laughs> you don't want to miss this yeah. one. <laughs> I want to talk about something else that I thought was pretty cool, Gary. You um, you put on what I believe was the first musical on a cruise ship. Yeah, we Is did. Is that accurate? We did. But that turned into something a little bit bigger. Wait, it, really? Yeah. Copacabana, right? Yeah, well, it kind of kind of reverse order. No, Copa started because it was the first music. It was the first original musical made for television. Okay, and that was uh, I remember uh, things have changed so much uh, in the way things happen. That was uh, Barry and Dick Clark and I went and met with uh, uh, Bud Grant, who was running CBS at the time, and uh, and Barry said. Well, we want to take the song Copacabana and turn it into a two-hour musical. And Bud said, okay. And that was about the end of the deal. <laughs> now you do pitch. these long pitches and it's, you know, you got to do all the work. Before, and then they say, we'll think about it. <laughs> um, so that was the first original musical made for television in about 1981, 82. And after that... Um, my daughter was about, oh, I don't know, six or seven years old, and I took her to see Disney on Ice at the sports arena, and it was me and all the other uh, solo dads, <laughs> kids, spending $30 on flashlights that made Mickey Mouse ears oh, yeah. on the ceiling. They'd hand them to the kid first, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they get oh, used Daddy, to it. I need two. Right. You know? <laughs> And, uh, which, you know, but respect for a good merch guy, you know, fine by me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this thing. And this was long before, like, uh, Hiawatha or any of the big production shows that Disney would do. So it was basically a boy and girl couple, skaters, a villain, a comedic foil, a chorus line, and a bad pit band. And I had, I had made the deal with Dick that... He was very Dick was Dick handled the budget on everything on Copa on the on the TV movie, so Dick was worried because I wanted Barry to have full control over the music, and he was nervous that that what if it goes over budget? And I said, okay, I'm on the hook. If Barry goes over budget in producing the music, I said I'll pay for it. I'll cover. You're it. covering all the overages. I'll call the uh, I'll cover the overages on the on the music on part. The music. And um, I said, but in return, I want to own the ancillary rights to the production. Now, there were no ancillary exploitation. I mean, other than the DVD that, you know, no one knew what they were going to do with it next. Well, we didn't even know what they were, if there was going to be any. Right, right. So I go to this ice show and I say, ah, this is the same characters as Copa. Cute boy, girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, comedic foil, villain, and a chorus. Plus, I own the music. So you had a good pit band. <laughs> yeah, I, had, I had a full orchestra <laughs> on a recording. So I went to all the ice shows, both of them, whatever, ice capades and the other. I said, hey, why don't we? No, 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 you don't understand. Nobody does ice shows with all those costumes and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. Okay, they, they do now, but they didn't in those days. So a buddy of mine was head of entertainment at Caesars at the time. And he called me up out of the blue one day and he said, you still have that idea to take turn Copa into an ice show? I said, yeah. And he said, well, would you do it at a casino? I said, yeah, I guess so. And he said, would you do it without ice? I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> In the dark. <laughs> we start to laugh. I said, what is that? <laughs> and... So we create, usually you do a Broadway musical and then you cut it down, you turn it into a, what's called a tab version, like a 75-minute version, okay? So we started out with a 75-minute version and we didn't, no one knew how to write a deal, so we wrote it like a TV deal. And it was a 13-week, in those days, TV deal, a series deal, it would be 13 weeks. If it didn't get canceled by a certain day, Another it automatically 13 weeks. So that was the deal and we put it into Caesars in Atlantic City. And it ran for, Barry directed it, it ran for nine months, it sold out, it was a big hit show, and then from there we took it to London, 
and went on the West End for a little over a year, then a tour, then it came over here and we did another deal with Pittsburgh Civic. And then by that time, an, an outgrowth of all of this was the same buddy had moved from Caesars and moved to Holland America Cruise Lines. Hmm. And they had three ships at the time. And he said, um, uh, Dory Sanchez was the choreographer. She went on and did a lot of shows with Cher. She did all of Cher's live shows. And she was a choreographer in London. And uh, I said, well, we, we had opening night. had to spend another week. She said, I can't be here because I'm doing the ship show. What are you doing? Turns out my buddy had ship hired show. a ship, ship, uh, ship show on it. It was with a P. was with a P. Although, <laughs> later. I later heard that it kind of was because they fired Dory and they asked me to come in and fix Damn it. Damn ship show. <laughs> but then we put Copa. We had a shorter version of Copa that ran on three ships for, God, four years, five years. But we ended up doing all. Holland America kept growing. We had 15 ships. We had 20 kids on each ship. They learned. My brother and I would write shows. You know, hello Hollywood, hello. Here's to Las Vegas. Let's hear it for the movies. You know what this? You know, you, you know what they are, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And um, so we did that for God, 22 years. We had all their ships and kids all over the place. And did you take a lot of cruises during that time? Uh, I did. I I originally went on one. Called, we call them schmooze cruises because it was when they launch a new ship and all the bankers, everybody who financed it would go and say, go and say hello and thanks for coming kind of thing. And, um, and the first time I went, I thought, oh, God, what has happened to me? I'm on a ship <laughs> <laughs> with a buffet and a chocolate extravaganza at midnight, right? <laughs> I thought, this is my worst nightmare. <laughs> this is hell, and I'm living in it. This is hell. I do T-shirts for Rod Stewart. I manage Barry Manilow, and I'm on a ship in the middle of nowhere. Wow, my career is really yeah, taking yeah. off. This is not going up. <laughs> but this is not something I could talk about at the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I remember I had dinner at the, they have like a specialist steakhouse. Probably the best steak I had ever had in my whole life. I then found out that Carnival owns ranches in Australia for their own for the beef. beef really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And uh, I said, you know, maybe this cruising thing isn't so bad. This is kind of nice. It was, I mean, the ship was beautiful, nice restaurants. And to this day, my daughter and I take a week every year, and we go on Seabourn, which is their, like, Four Seasons yeah, level yeah. branch. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm, I saw the light. I'm converted. It's a really nice way to travel and see different parts of the world. That's great. And you unpack once, and you don't slip your luggage through the That's airport. A, my <laughs> wife and I, the first cruise we both ever took together was to Alaska. And it was also the first time she was away from the kids for a full week. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is such a relaxing way to vacation because you, you don't you, you see a lot, but you live in the same room, which is so yeah. nice. Uh, I want to jump back to today. Okay. Uh, in addition to the McCallum, which is going to be an awesome responsibility. And I, I, I like what you said about looking at ways to expand. But obviously, the, the landscape has changed a bit because we now have the Acrisure Arena, which brings in a mm -hmm. different level of... Uh, of entertainment in terms of the size they can accommodate. How do how do you counter program against something like that? Oh, I think there's a niche for us. Truthfully, I think there. You know, we've got a little over uh, 1,100 seats. Uh, we're you know we're not going to compete with Opera Show. We're not going to you know they're going to be involved in the new Palm Springs Theater and uh, re restoring the old theater. That's what 600 seats. Yeah, that's you know there, six or eight. Yeah, there's a lot of people in there in that 1,000 seat pocket um you know like the patty labelles of the world people like that that she's not going to play an 8,000 seat arena and she's not going to play a 600 seat arena uh we're not agua cayente is what 2500 yeah the, the show, show is 2500 so there's a sweet spot in there uh i don't see the rest of the guys doing broadway i think we've done very well with broadway shows we just had come from away that sold out all eight shows which was fantastic well, um, it's, a, it's a part of the fabric of the community, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do believe, more so than some of these other venues that we're talking about, the, the McCallum, I think people feel ownership of it. Exactly. The community mm -hmm. feels yeah. an ownership of the McCallum Theater. Well, and it is. It, it's our theater. You know, it doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to all of us, and I think the people take great pride. And listen, I've seen hundreds of theaters around the world. Uh, none are as nice as the McCallum. Uh, it's spotless, it's safe, it's, you know, they went 
probably, you know, maybe not overboard, but they went to the max on making sure everybody was protected regarding COVID. Uh, they were one of the first ones to put in a vaccination policy, even for people in the cast and crew and everybody, months before anybody else even thought about it. And I think we all take a pride in ownership. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm the chairman, but, I, you know, I live here and I'm very proud of our little theater. I think it's, you know... It, it's a jewel box. You know, Gary, I volunteer. Um, I've been an usher there for the first time this season. You're not going to hit up yeah. for pay, are you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not <laughs> I'm not eating very well right now. Well, I have some merchandise well, now ideas. Know, now we know who's been selling the program. <laughs> I have some big conversations, little bar t-shirts. Yeah, you sell them for three bucks. You're getting three bucks a program. <laughs> Don't go to door six because Randy's there. <laughs> he won't give them to that's you. Right, that's right. You can't even have a program. Um, but my point is, is that as I, you know, we all gather up there an hour and a half before uh-huh. the show starts and you can feel it among the volunteers that that's why they're there because McCallum means something to them and it means something to the community. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm hoping will continue with the McCallum is the use of the volunteers and, and bringing them in. Um, yeah, but they're going to have to wear socks. Oh, that's going to change. I know. Now you have to quit. <laughs> Can I just quit. paint my ankles black? <laughs> It'd be a lot cheaper. <laughs> Gary, this has been fantastic. I was so looking forward to having you on here. And if you don't I'm mind done? me asking, what, what's next for Barry? Uh, well, let me see. We, he just The New York Pops just honored him at uh, Carnegie Hall a couple of weeks ago. That was a big deal. Uh, he's going to do some arena shows this summer. Uh, his play Harmony opens in Broadway on November 13th, uh, which has only taken us th- 30 years to, <laughs> you know, I got to start, start working on the next one. <laughs> you, you got a lot of work to do. Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Barry a few years ago uh, prior to the performance at the McCallum. And uh, what I really thoroughly enjoy is his passion for the music itself. That's his thing. Yeah. Really, yeah. that's his thing. We're going to be back. He's going to do some more shows in December. Yeah. Well, well uh, two weeks ago was the 40th anniversary of the first time my wife and I saw Barry. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Where was that? Circle Star Theater up in oh, South San Indiana. Francisco. No, oh, just oh, south there. of San oh, Francisco. The part of, they were part of the same group. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was just fantastic, and I can't wait to see him again this Christmas. That was run by Don Joe Mendelveen. Circle Star was, mm-hmm. huh? He had no neck. <laughs> <laughs> you should, the stage used to circle, and you would see a guy with no neck on the side. You know why Italians have no neck? It's a visual joke. It doesn't go over on a podcast. But that was on joke. That's, that's the joke. He, he was a fun guy. Hey. This has been a delight. We, Thank you, guys. We would like a commitment that you'll come back and do this again. Sure. I'll okay. come back. Yeah, yeah after a couple easy. of weeks Thank in the McCallie, you can say, okay, I'm going to stick around. Okay, next time, though, will you buy me a real drink? We, I mean, the we'll water's buy you a real nice, drink right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Gary, uh, thanks for being here today. Gary Keefe, our guest, who is the chairman now of the McCallum and on the Palm Springs International Film Festival Board. Just a delight to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate the candid, Thank you. candid conversation. My thanks to Randy Florence, my co-host, who does a, a brilliant job. And it was your idea to have Gary on. I wouldn't have thought to ask. So John was very heavily involved in that. Yes, so our I producer, thank, John McMullen. John, uh, nobody's actually ever said yes to me. So <laughs> That's I, not true. You've been married for 42 years. And how well, many kids do you have? Person and he's still yes. hoping. She yeah. says yes. Well, we slept together twice. We've got two sons. <laughs> That has to be the exclamation mark on this podcast. This is Big Conversations, Little Bar, and keep it tuned right here to your favorite podcast platform because we'll be dropping another episode very soon. We appreciate your listenership. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations, Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations, Little Bar. Little Bar.